So today um, is the 15th of September and we're here today with Philip Byrne, a Deputy CIO and Head of Trading with Merriam Investment Managers, part of the Cantor Fitzgerald Group. Um, Phil, I mean, I think we're meeting at a, an interesting time. It feels like we have had a lot of bad news. Um, I'm just going to run through what we've been putting through ourselves through recently. So obviously we're, we're very familiar of the uh, recession fears, uh, the uh, economic growth uh, outlook. Um, we've also had non-stop news about inflation um, and how it has failed to be as transitory as we were first hoping. Energy prices, anybody who's driven recently um, and is looking into uh, heating their homes uh, towards the winter um, is already uh, getting worried about that. And then, of course, we've had the central bank news. So really, my question is, um, should we be running for the hills? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, and uh, as you said, yeah, an incredible year, uh, both for markets and the economy. And it's one of those years where all the topical issues that everyone's facing in their day-to-day -day lives are actually also what's driving um, the markets as well. Uh, and it's, so it's made for quite a, interesting discussions in, in things like this. We don't for one second underestimate the, the problems that have been facing uh, people, the economies, and the markets here to date. Where we, where we differ from people is we, we feel that people underestimate how strong the economies, the consumer, the corporates were going into this year and their ability to withstand any crisis. This particular crisis this year is an inflation one, um, energy inflation in Europe and um, broad-based inflation in the US. Um, and we feel probably more uh, than most that a lot of these problems are behind us and the solutions are closer than we uh, or than is, is realized. I think something that I saw uh, this morning um, was history suggests that uh, once inflation has peaked, uh, equities can be expected to rally. I mean, how, how true do you feel that might be? Yeah, again, we, th we feel that for all the bad news flow that we've had uh, in the summer year to date, is where it, markets actually bottomed about three months ago already. Um, they, they bottomed early June. So in spite of all the, the energy price increases we've seen in August, the interest rate headlines around the Fed, the ECB, markets at the moment, they could always go lower, but have actually bottomed in June. And what's been interesting for us when we were going through what's led the markets higher uh, since then, so we look at the relative performance of stocks and sectors kind of under the surface, it would be stocks and sectors that are indicative of a strong economy with strong growth and strong inflation uh, and continued elevated interest rates. So it's, it's more encouraging than the people would uh, have you believe in terms of the, what the market is thinking for a recession. I, and in terms of, uh, you know, a, a lot of the talk is, is this, we're almost talking ourselves into a recession. Um, do you think that's fair or are central banks going to be able to do their job? Yeah, I, th I think it's, because it's different on which side of the, the Atlantic you're on. I think in Europe, the main problem, everyone knows, is energy prices. And in particular, what's happened in the war in Russia. There's an old saying, when the policymakers panic, as an investor, you can stop. And two weeks ago, the policymakers panicked. And the intervention 
that they've put into the European power price market is, um, will fundamentally change how we uh, price power in Europe going forward. It also means we'd be fairly confident that we're at the peak power price and gas price in Europe. So it's, it's more elevated, obviously, than this time last year. It's more elevated even than in March, but just that peak pressure um, that, that we've been under is now abated. And I, I can go into that if you want. Yeah, what, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think so essentially, the, the, so everyone knows the, the power price in Europe is set by the gas price, even though it's only about 30% of how we generate power is, uh, is the marginal um, energy supply. So that was decided a long time ago, is that's how you set the, the power price, which is electricity. Um, Russia invaded Ukraine, there was concerns obviously about the gas price, it shot up in March, it came all the way back down in June. And then in June when they turned off uh, the uh, gas supply from, um, uh, excuse me, from Russia, the gas price elevated again. But what actually happened really was in August, the power market essentially broke for want of a better word. And you know, we live in a hyper sort of financialized economy. And, and why it broke is because utility companies, uh, so, so, so the power price went up because the gas price went up, but it went up far beyond what it should have. And the reason is because people or utility companies sell, as they say, they sell their power forward. They effectively hedge it. And when you hedge something, you have to put margin. So the more the price was going up, beyond any, like it went up tenfold in Germany over August. Like it was, it, it just, it was the equivalent of when the oil price went negative at the bottom of COVID. And when it, it went up so high that the margin calls, Statoil or Equinor as they're called now, said it was a one and a half trillion dollar margin call effectively for these power companies who had to keep trying to either post margin or hedge the power. So the thing just exploded and it broke. And you've seen all these people, Panda Power and Uniper going, uh, has to be nationalized in Europe. So that is, is what caused the, the, the Europeans to intervene. And what they've done is, um, the first thing they've done is they're saying the gas price will no longer uh, set the power price in that we have to include the price of renewables, which is effectively free once you invest it, nuclear, coal, like it's a much more sensible, broad-based basket. So that's, that's the first thing they did to, to try and break the link between gas and power. The second thing they did is they effectively gave unlimited liquidity to all these power companies so the, you didn't get this big margin squeeze. So all this forced buying, that was nothing to do with the demand for power. It was literally a, it was a financial problem, like, like kind of Lehman Brothers type thing. It was a financial issue. That's all ended. So already we've seen like German power prices, for example, they've halved in the last six weeks. You know, which is a huge, taking the pressure off massively. Um, what they're also then doing is, so, so is that the gas price now uh, is based on the pipe price from Russia, because that's where we used to get all our gas. Well, that makes no sense now because we don't get it through. We all get it through LNG. So they're trying to link the benchmark gas price now to LNG, which at the moment is 30% cheaper than the, um, the, the piped gas price. So when you put them all together um, as measures, uh, you can see already that the, what we experienced over late in the summer will end. And hopefully, although it takes a while to, to filter through to the, you know, you'll probably see headlines of retail power price increases in the next month or two. That should be the peak, you know, of the, of the actual rate. And it'll come back down. Goldman's uh, in particular have been very good on, on the gas price. They see European gas prices halving by the time we get through to the end of the winter. And, and the other point to bear in mind, and 
and this is why people are so concerned about the recession, the other fear out there is that there's going to be a shortage of gas in Europe for the winter. Um, we think we'd be as confident as we can be that there won't be, and the reason is because Europe has paid up in the LNG market to bring the gas in. So it's not going to be a double hit. For gas in particular, it was either pay too much for it or not have enough of it. And Europe has gone into the LNG market, if anyone doesn't know, is now a global market where you liquefy gas, you put it on a big boat, and it moves around the world. It's an early industry, but it's what's growing the most. So Europe, in Europe uh, at the start of the summer, used to be about 10 or 15% of global LNG imports. It's now 30%. Uh, and the reason it can go in and do that is because the uh, places like China, they can use coal. They've taken some gas from Russia, Japan, has said, well, we're not paying that for gas. We're going to turn on the turn on 27 nuclear power reactors. You know, the whole world is, has reacted uh, to it and, and tried to solve the problem. So although at the moment, and, and this is, it sort of paints to a bigger picture about markets and investing and in that like when there's a problem, the problem is always presented in the media and in the financial media, but there are hundreds and thousands of people trying to solve it as well. You know, and the analogies between the gas price now some and COVID is incredible. If you all remember back in March, in April 2020, the general consensus was three years for a vaccine. You know, well, actually the first thing was we need to get PPE from China. You know, and we can't get PPE. Then it was, it'll take three years for a vaccine. Then it was like, well, we'll get the vaccine, but it, it has to be stored at 20 degrees. You know, there's all, the, and, and there are problems, but when you look at the world bottom up like we do, there's just thousands of companies, corporates, you know, dare I say, politicians like trying to solve it. And, and that's where we feel we are on the, the, the issue within um, uh, Europe so, and, and gas. So the, we feel there will be enough gas. The other thing um, that's happened, obviously, this is assuming the, the rationing demand will come in, but it's not that bad. 5% of peak we have to reduce our, our energy supply by. And, and um, the other thing we've seen is a credible amount of, of switching by industry in Europe already. Um, in terms of switching out of gas into oil, diesel, renewables, like every company just has their own way of doing it, moving production to Germany and something. So, so far, like as we sit here in the middle of September after nine months of, um, you know, this sort of supposed, or th it is the biggest cost of living crisis or energy crisis in Europe, there's still no effect of it yet, right? So there's still no, you actually, uh, it was on a call yesterday, Ger European GDP is actually going to go up for this quarter estimates because the Spanish and Italian tourist season was so large, um, you know, that it, it overweighed it for now. So that's, that's all uh, uh, pretty good. And then even probably more important for everyone in the room is the fiscal response from governments. Again, uh, we, the, the economies, the Western economies have gone into this slowdown, uh, slowdown crisis so strong and you can even see the measures we're going to have here next week it's talking about a six billion euro budget a thousand euro tax cut per person 600 euro um, of further electricity credits another 200 euro a week childcare like it's thousands and thousands governments are giving to um their uh, to, to the voters and this has been replicated in germany the uk one which you can get to is colossal um so since COVID, there's just been this expectation from the governments that Western living standards can't drop and that they will go in and at a, at a fiscal level try and offset it. So that's why when we, and when we weigh all these things together, like is our gas price, are we all going to be paying higher for gas and electricity this year? Absolutely. Is the peak? I think so. Are governments going to offset a lot of it? Yes. And the markets, which you know, the main point we're here, have actually discounted 
uh, or had fallen for none of the solutions. So you can see it, and if you like, you know, European industrial stocks down 20, 30, 40%, the DAX is still down 20. But so that's the, the dilemma the market prices in initially a problem, and then all the solutions come to the fore, and we, we just start getting, getting through it. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a, a really good point that you make in terms of, of the market and how MIM view the world, because we're, we're lucky uh, enough to have uh, Phil or one of his colleagues on our morning call on a Monday uh, to give us their view of the world. And this Monday, um, as it has been for the, for the last few Mondays, I, I think you've been telling us you're, you're positive, you're, you're um, up at the upper end of, of your allocation to equities. Um, so you're obviously feeling buoyed by, by markets. Yeah, like we're fully invested. Like I said, it's not to downplay how bad the issues aren't. It's more how, as I said, strong companies, corporates were going into the crisis, how it's been managed, and the valuations now you can get uh, on, on assets. Because what we're always talking about now, and these events always end up talking about the, the cyclical issue of the day. So a lot of everyone cares about the gas price now. You know, if it was February, it would have been the oil price. The oil price is $140. It's now 80, 85. If it was last year, it would have been Omicron. If it was the year before, it would have been the Delta variant. It would have been the vaccine. Then it was Trump. Then it was Brexit. Um, the corporate tax issue in Ireland. Like there is, it is endless the amount of topical problems that come every quarter. This one is a particularly bad one. But as I said, what drives markets ultimately, they're long-term assets. They're companies that have got you know, exposures to long-term, particularly what we like, long-term structural trends that uh, just continue growing over time. And our job we feel, as fund managers is to try and you know, manage the risks around these things short-term. Uh, but more importantly, is, is focus on just that's what, what drives long-term performance and investment. It really... <laughs> funny analogy I like is someone said why does the stock market go up you know all the time and they said look as long as people will pay three dollars to Starbucks for 30 cent worth of coffee the market's going to go higher <laughs> and it, it is that at every industry like you um it it, it it it's trying to find that you know it's not all about just the, the short-term news flow which drives all our sentiment it's those you know longer term investing and, and returns on capital and i i think it's also worth pointing out with the, in terms of uh, you know we had the great financial crisis and all of us here had to uh, deal with that at the time um back in 2008 the consumer is in a much better position now even today, even facing into potentially higher energy costs it's, and inflation. It, it's amazing. I just got off a presentation there at the luxury company and they had this survey. And basically when they surveyed what people are positive about, they're positive about their own job, their own health, their own savings. What they're negative about is the economy, the cost of living crisis, and I can't remember what the last climate change. So it's all these top-down concerns we're, we're reading about all the time, and consumer sentiment is on the floor, like at an aggregate level, and investor sentiment at an aggregate level is on the floor. But people, um, a Bank of America CFO yesterday was saying their spending in August is up 10% year over year versus last August, and savings haven't gone down. And these are record savings because employment is three and a half percent in the US. It's three percent here. Wage inflation is seven, eight percent um, globally. The GFC is a good analogy because going into that crisis, corporates, households, everyone was over levered. 
Whereas you actually spent the last 15 years deleveraging. Then COVID came and savings went through the roof and governments again gave everyone, like the US government this time last year was still giving people $3,000 a family. You know, that was the level of fiscal support. Like we all know the stories of students here getting the, whatever it was, the 300 euro a week, even though they, you know, that's still in the system. Um, so it's, it's, it's incredible, the, the, the spending stats, um, I get a Visa and MasterCard out this week, it's spending on travel, it's, it's what's driving inflation, which is another issue, but the, the, the health of the consumer still has been phenomenal. Um, and, and just we feel continued will be as long as the, um, the jobs market is so strong. Uh, and I, I think I'm, I'm going to open it up a little bit, but I'll, I'll get the ball rolling. So uh, in terms of maybe if we could kind of narrow it down a little bit um, in terms of maybe a, the sectors you like at the moment or the regions you like, um, that, that, would, yeah. that would be good to hear. Yeah, so at a regional level, we always think the U.S., long term will never be beaten just because of the structure of the economy this and the, what makes up the stock market so that and then Europe at the moment we feel there's a particular opportunity because the, the discount that it's trading at versus the rest of the world and its history needs to narrow so that's the, and it's, we think it's all gas because the, the euro versus the dollar as well is trading at a big discount compared to what the interest rate differentials in the two economies would be. So there's a big sort of gas, Russian, Ukrainian discount in European assets that we view in ours. So we're overweight um, uh, European and US assets. Within that, slightly different in what we own, Europe, we think, a huge opportunity within um, industrials that are exposed to decarbonisation, for want of a better word. Um, it's, it's always been a, a huge topic. It's accelerated because of uh, the crisis in uh, the Ukraine. And so many European companies like Kingspan, Sangoban, um, uh, Vestas, Orsted, they're all at the heart. Like Europe's actually led the renewable charge um, over the last five years on, on decarbonisation, um, which is amazing So Europe hasn't really led anything for a while. But now the US has picked up the slack. So we saw, if you, well, you saw last, last week, Joe Biden's big fiscal package. Um, he, he called it the Inflation Reduction Act for some reason, but it's purely to kickstart the US uh, investment in decarbonisation. And it's, it's transformational. And that's not me saying it. It's the next era CEO, which is the biggest renewable company in the world. He said it's, it's the biggest transformation of their industry ever. Uh, overnight, they've made green hydrogen, for example, um, competitive with fossil fuels. They're giving $7,500 a credit if you buy an EV. They're just the whole supply chain. It's, it's $350 billion of um, investment credits. It's $250 billion of tax credits. It's over 10 years, but it's actually targeted until they reach the emissions targets of the Paris Accord of minus 2%, i.e. it's never going away. You know, it's, we're not going to reach those in 10 years, so it'll be a 20-year thing. So, um, sorry, so that's, that's kick-started. But yeah, yeah, European decarbonisation. And then European banks, um, all of a sudden, uh, so for 10 years, underperformed, regulation, low interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. Interest rates started to rise, and the banks didn't really react to them um, as much as they thought in the last two weeks they have. Uh, we feel that's only the start. And the reason in the last two weeks they've reacted is because the ECB are allowing banks to keep all the extra money they get from interest rate rises. Uh, European banks made 68 billion in revenue last year, which isn't a lot, like it's less than Microsoft. 
if you follow where rates are priced for the end of the year, that 68 billion would go to 168 billion. Now they'll pass some of it back, back, but it's transformational for an industry that is trading, you know, four or five times earning, half times book, and it's effectively this is like risk-free income, like it's literally the ECB giving it to them. So this is a huge transformation for like a, a quite quite a cheap um, sector in the US. We particularly are always uh, uh, involved in the growth names and the US tech names. This year, it's been particularly difficult for them, not just because interest rates went up, and um, that was one of it, but some of them did make a lot of mistakes post-COVID. So now it's just trying to sort of uh, weed through where the opportunities are, and we can see huge opportunities, um, mainly from what management are changing in the likes of Netflix, PayPal, um, in particular, are two of the, the, the largest ones for us, um, as um, Amazon and Google. And, and the reason is, all those names are heavily exposed to e-commerce trends and digital advertising and essentially what happened was these were say things that were growing 10 percent pre the pandemic for two years post pandemic they grew 20 percent and 20 percent and then going into this year people were still modeling that they'd grow that high in actual fact they grew slightly below average and the market then repriced that this whole industry was x growth and then in the uh, it's actually not it was a lot of it was the dollar uh, and then in the last two or three months, you're actually seeing these trends are normalizing again, uh, whereas the stocks are trading at big discounts to their long run averages. Uh, and also management were a bit chastened. So finally, you're seeing in, these are very successful companies with a lot of people who are paid a lot, free lunches, and the management are taking a load of cost out as well, finally, which is always good to see a bit more discipline. So that, um, that in, the, in the US for us, but I'd actually say, you know, when we go through, another reason why we're constructive on just markets generally is that when we go through each industry, whether we own it or not, well, wait, we can see very sensible reasons why you, sh you should own it or could own them. Um, again, mistakes pre the financial crisis generally around over leverage are gone. I, I can't find a sector that's leveraged like house builders in the US now, obviously, which is at the, the, the center of, uh, of the, the problems in the US with rates going up, even, even stocks like that, you know, probably yielding seven, eight, nine percent. You know, a house builder, if this was 08, these companies would be giving you rights issues and, you know, like they'd, they'd be on their knees and everything, but it's not. It's, so that we find is probably most encouraging. So if you look at the world bottom up, we're also just four markets. We talked about inflation, cost of living, labor wages. It's record margins. Corporates have record margins at the moment. They'll have record margins next quarter. We feel it's one of our, our big themes and trends. It's just digitalization, it's the investment in technology, the ability to do uh, more with less. It's, it's, it's been going on for the last 10 years. It's going to go on for the next 20 years. And it's, you see it in every industry, every quarter. Um, FedEx announced a huge investment in, in their own um, cloud investments uh, that they, they think they can take out a billion dollars of costs just by moving to an external cloud. Who runs the cloud? It's going to be Microsoft or Amazon or Google. And it's just the self-perpetuating cycle mm. that get people pay attention to when the markets are booming, but everyone forgets about it now, but it's still what's going on. So we think allowing for the volatility, allowing for all the issues that, um, given how poor the, the markets were really into the start of the year after it, uh, that the opportunity for us is just to stay invested, try and work out the opportunities. Um, so. Is there anybody out there who has a, a question? Ah, 
Yes. Do you see the dollar continuing to be strong versus the euro? So, sorry. Um, do you do you see uh, the dollar rate continuing being strong? No, we, we think it's reached peak parity. And the reason is because the, uh, the Federal Reserve led the interest rate rises globally. The ECB is now catching up very quickly. So when you look at the two um, uh, currencies on just that difference in interest rates, the euro should actually be about 110. But we think there's just a big discount at the moment um, because of the Ukraine-Russia war and the subsequent gas crisis. And when that normalises, you should see... Um, uh, we think you'll see quite a huge catch-up uh, in, in the rates. Um, now, it's, it's slightly counter-consensual. The strong dollar is quite baked into a lot of people's expectations, but we see a situation where the ECB will probably be still raising rates early next year, and the Fed will actually be looking, probably maybe even be forced to cut them. So, feel on a risk award, it's, it, it's peaked. Anyone else? Just a question, you mentioned there about the, uh, the tech markets in the US in particular. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing any trends or investment opportunities as a result of working from home? I see Europe's kind of coming back into getting yeah. out of the office, the US are not, and some companies are even staying long term now working from home. Do you see that impacting the markets or any opportunities and our trends? Yeah, it's, it's huge. So you're right, so the, the stats we got at the end of August was 44% of US offices are empty. It's like we're two years from the, um, from the crisis in the US because they reopened earlier than us. So they are very much entrenched uh, in working from home. So yeah, what it's done is it's increased. A lot of people thought some of the tech spend would have to normalize because uh, as we all come back to the office, but actually it's, it's the opposite. You now need a dual structure. You need to be able to have investment for uh, your staff coming into the office or from home. Um, so where it's really uh, playing through is in... Um, some of the semiconductors involved in like data centers, uh, so like Marvell, and then Microsoft is always the huge winner from anything software related. You can see how they're, they, they're bundling up, you know, the Teams system is something probably no one used two years ago, and now it's become as essential as email um, from it. The, um, the other impact it's having is, now is the real estate market. Is have, it's having a huge impact. Um, so the so-called, what do they call them in the US? The smile states. So basically the sunny states. Prices are going through the roof. Rents um, and house prices, because everyone wants to live, live there and further out. So that's, that's, it's also impacting that. Um, trying to think. So mainly the software, uh, anything to do with the cloud. I think that's the, the, the tech spending. Uh, Alan? Hi, your view on the UK? Yeah, the UK is, as we are optimistic on the world and we're constructive on the world. If there's a financial crisis on the back of energy prices, we think it'll be in the UK. So, and that's not like a kind of an Irish sort of thing, like it's, we, we don't do a lot in, in, in trade in the UK. The, so you gotta remember, like, so ten, the, the UK grew below par for 10 years uh, after the financial crisis, the George Osborne, David Cameron austerity measures um, meant it was just growing far below its capacity. Then they decided to have Brexit, which accelerated that trend. Um, but the problem with Brexit was governments had to borrow a lot more. We all had to take a lot more on our shoulders. Britain historically can only f funded itself from inward investment. So at a time really after 10 years of growing longer, lower than they should have, they then turned their back on inward investment 
And then that was fine post-Brexit because, uh, and during COVID because the Bank of England and central banks everywhere were stepping in and they were buying everyone's debt. So we could all um, probably be a bit more ex extravagant. That's all ended now. And all of a sudden, Britain's got a bigger, this is before Liz Truss's announcements, by the way, Britain's got a bigger debt pile to service. And also the quirk of when central banks bought um, their government's debt, they then got the coupons from the debt you know, the interest rate as you would invest, and gave it back to the Treasury. And it was a lovely kind of rinky-dink going on. The difference in Britain was is that Britain, for whatever reason, I don't know, the British Central Bank of England didn't buy the inflation-linked debt, right? So now as inflation's gone through the roof, although they bought 50% of the um, debt, the expensive bit they left, and those interest repayments are going up. So Britain's left now with its main buyer of uh, bonds um, gone. Its interest bill is going up quicker than anyone else's. It has Brexit, so there's no flexibility on its economy and its supply chain, so its inflation pressures are worse. Its inflation pressures are then worse even again because Britain, hard to believe it, like, is even more reliant on gas than Europe. So you, that's why you see Britain's uh, inflation figures are like double digit already. And Britain decided not to um, actually help anyone the way we did at source and the way France did. So they, they, they were following the IMF's way of like, you just let everyone, me, let everyone um, take the hit and then, you know, you get them tax cuts six months later or whatever. So it means your inflation is even higher. And then Liz Truss has come along at the worst possible time and proposed unfunded, or sorry, uncosted, um, fiscal measures of if you add them all up it's about 300 billion like it's absurd that she's given an open-ended um, guarantee on these on the price of gas and stuff she has uh, you know taken back tax raises she's promised tax cuts and she's then also threatened the Bank of England's independence so as an international investor you're thinking hang on a second you've grown subpar for 10 years the only you need the two people you need to fund yourself are either your own central bank or international investors um, and you're trying to say, you're, you're promising in Parliament, like this is what happened in Turkey and places like this, you've got £300 billion of fiscal spending you're going to give, but you haven't said where you're going to get the money from. You know, you can compare that to that, like our government here, like we're giving a big uh, giveaway next, uh, next week, six, eight billion. That's basically nearly all funded by corporate tax. The economy's booming. You know, it's, uh, it won't fully be now because it's, it's increasing, but like that's, you know, it's costed, it's sensible. They've, they, they've lowered the bar every year in Britain in terms of politics, and it, it, it's gotten away, the markets let them get away with it each time, but if there's a tipping point, and there mightn't be, gas prices might collapse, you know, she might rein in what she's proposed, but we, you can see it, and the reason why I think it's happening is rates are going up in the UK and sterling's falling, and that's a big red flag. Because how do you break that cycle? It's supposed to be the opposite. When you're, the Bank of England are raising rates and sterling is still collapsing. And what that's telling you is that no matter how much you're raising rates, investors are taking their money out. They don't want the 2 or 3% from gilts that they can get. They, they, they'd rather go somewhere else. And that's a big red flag. And we're watching it. And look, I said it probably would, it might just fade away because the global economy gets on. But if things got worse globally, I think you'd see Britain having a, re a real moment of, of measure. And, and the other issue then, sorry, is, well, you say the central banks step in. But if central banks step in, sterling would collapse. If you see what's happened in the yen um, in, in the last sort of three or four months, it's fallen about 20% because their central bank stepped in to buy bonds when inflation is rampant. 
well, not sorry, rampant globally, but they're trying, they're trying to hold their own inflation down. If, if, if the Bank of England were forced to do that, it, it would, uh, it was sterling would just, it would collapse. It really would. So we're watching this, we're kind of short sterling a bit and short gills. Sometimes these things sort of just pass and no one notices, but it would be a, uh, it's a problem. Any other questions? Oh, yeah. Can I ask you about uh, inflation at the moment? Have you been speaking about it? Have you been speaking about the power of the gas and everything up to 10% yep. and more in many European countries? And this inflation is really forced on us all because of the war in Ukraine, or energy because of the war in Ukraine. And still, the European Central Bank will come in behind it and put up interest rates at this particular time. Is it not really a bit sort of stupid of to come along and operate at this particular time when people are talking now, like the Central Bank in Ireland was talking about interest rates, the inflation uh, was going to fall in the middle of last year. And like I, I, I talked about it on different occasions and said nobody believes that only themselves. And like, you know, really we're in a situation at the moment where we're looking at these increases and increases and increases, but now we're looking at the actual rate increases as well. And at a time when people are paying so much forced upon them. It's not that we're all going to spend and buying new cars and buying new washing machines and buying new everything. That's not what's happening here. So now the central bank, do you think it's a bit sort of early for them to drop the rates? Or there's actually, I see talk maybe in the past couple of days, those rates may well come back down again. But it's not a bit sort of stupid they're doing something like that. Um, so just to paraphrase, um, with inflation being the level it is in um, Europe, um, is there not a contradiction with the central bank putting up interest rates? Yeah, 100% there is. They, 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 the central banks globally are, were under fierce pressure because they got inflation wrong last year. So they're now globally trying to over-solve. And the, the central banks run off a much more academic theory that inflation, you know, this, the Milton Freeman is always an everywhere monetary phenomenon, which it's clearly not, but they work under that. So having seen inflation go up with negative rates and the, um, the Federal Reserve raising rates, everyone across the world raising rates, the ECB sort of group think they were all even in a, a conference in August together, global central bankers, you know, banging the table, we must do something, and they've raised rates. Yes, yeah, to try and climb demand. It's even more idiotic, as I said, we're just getting the biggest fiscal spending packages off governments to keep demand high, and central banks are raising interest rates to try and temper demand. So it is, it, they shouldn't be doing it. They should have raised rates last year in advance of what you could see was the strong economy coming through, but they wait for the lagging data on inflation, and then by the time that data came through, uh, the war in Ukraine had started and it, they were f just forced to do something, particularly the Germans with seeing their inflation 7-8%. The only well, good thing about the ECB is that it's off such a low level. So it was minus 50, it's now 75 basis points. The market at the moment is pricing in about 2% by the end of the year, which I think they will get, they will get to there, and then hopefully they'll be able to assess because you know, this time next year, if the, you know, we're sort of even half right on gas prices and power prices and the war in Ukraine, inflation will look a lot lower. Like the actual headline inflation year on year will be really low. Um, and then they might decide to cut depending on the economy is. But I think uh, the, going back to COVID as well, like so much still COVID, central banks over uh, panicked or during COVID in that March, April. At that stage, 
when the world was locked down, they, you know, they're forecasting GDP to fall 20%. They all cut rates to zero in a week. And then government stepped in. It didn't take as long for the vaccine. And they just never caught up. They were terrified. Last Christmas, Powell was talking about Omicron. Like, who can even remember that we were worried about COVID last Christmas? That's why he didn't want to put up rates. So they were too slow, and now they're, they're over-solving. It's, it's like the golfer who hooks left and keeps, you know, and aims right and ends up slicing it. It's, they, they do that. But it's, it, it shouldn't, I don't think it'll impact. At these levels, it's still um, manageable for economies. Even Ireland, like the Irish housing market, um, people are worried about interest rates here um, by the time they get to the end of the year you know you're talking probably you still get a fixed rate mortgage three three and a quarter percent it costs you about four four and a half percent to rent a house like they're still historically low levels of borrowing um, now the bigger issue or problem will be if we're sitting here in february march april next year and inflation hasn't come down at all and do they go from two to four percent? So you know that will be the dilemma next year um, to, to try and work out. And one last question. Oh, yeah. Hypothetically, if interest rates in the U.S. and in Europe went up a further two to three hundred basis points, which would be a lot. Yeah. If that were to happen, what would your advice on equities be? And would you, if in if in equities, in which type of equity? Yeah, well, I suppose it would depend on what's driven them up. If it's the inflation still here next year, all equities will, 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 have, a, will have a problem. The raising, you know, it would be hard, even in, it would mean a very strong economy and earnings would be great, but it would be hard for the overall market to push on. I'm not saying that it would, it would collapse, but at a simple, you know, decision at a personal level, if you can guarantee getting 6% on savings for one year, you know, the balance of how you're going to invest is going to change no matter what age you are. So at the moment, like people have been, it's really been, you know, cash or equities, and that's been dependent on your personal circumstances. That'll change to cash, equities, and bonds. So there'll be a, you know, there'll, there'll absolutely be a shift in behavior. But within that, you know, if you got to 6%, certain sectors, banks, you're assuming then, um, would you know, they like, like they treble. You know, I wouldn't mean to say that lightly. The profitability would be so great. You'd also then imply that energy prices have held up here. So it means they, all the oil stocks, mining stocks, and uh, commodity stocks as well. They're already on huge free cash flows here that people don't really believe. You're implying they'd be higher as well. So that would push on um, as well. The other analogy, though, I'd give about people on interest rates, anyone who remembers the tech bubble in 2000, you know, in the, from 95 to 2000, the US two-year was 5%, and markets traded on 50 times earnings. So, the, you know, the market evolves. Like, once, it, once rates stop going up, um, or even just find a level, the markets will push on. Like, that's, you can see it in them. Like, they're try, every, the Fed keep just pushing the, not uh, when they'll stop hiking rates. The market has consistently sort of said, in December this year, they hike the, the Fed will stop, well, December, January, they'll stop hiking. It's just been the terminal rate has gone up all the time. People say at the start of the summer, it was going to be three and a half. Now it's like four, four and a quarter. And it's just kind of, it, it hasn't quite got to the, the terminal level. But when they stop has been pretty consistent. So once that happens, then people will know exactly the opportunity cost. I get 4% in the US for a two-year, or I can buy equities on 15 times earnings with 10% earnings growth and 2% dividends, and be that choice. So that's, and that's historically, sorry, to, to, is that what the volatility 
has always been caused at the start of the rate hiking cycle as the markets try to work out when it ends. And it usually takes the market historically three months to work out when it ends. It's nine months now at this stage. And at that terminal rate just keeps avoiding, um, eluding uh, the, the market. Okay, thank you so much, everybody. Um, I want to thank you all for, for coming along today. Um, it's been really wonderful um, listening to Phil. I barely had to ask any questions. Um, as you can see, an absolute vast wealth of knowledge there. Um, we are uh, going to be sticking around afterwards, so we'd love you to, to join us for a glass of wine. Um, and you can quiz Phil one-on-one -on -one, um, as well. So, <laughs> wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. This recording does not constitute personal recommendations nor provide the sole basis for any evaluation for the securities discussed. Specific advice should always be sought prior to investment based on the particular circumstances of individual investors. Past performance is not a reliable guide to future performance. The value of your investment may go down as well as up. Cantor Fitzgerald and Merion Investment Managers are regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Disclosures relating to our research and our terms and conditions can be found on our website at cantorfitzgerald.ie.